And welcome back to Dinner, Drinks, and Death. I am Elizabeth. And I'm Erin. And we are doing our second installment of Missing Persons. Woohoo. We've got some exciting stuff for you guys today. I know mine is fun. Yours is fun. I'm a little bit jealous because I wanted that case. I found it first. (laughs) You did. So instead, I'm going to start us off with another one. And both of these cases happened a long time ago. Yeah. So my first case, or my only case. (laughs) I was like, how many are you doing? I thought you were only doing one. (laughs) My only case today is taking place in 1930. Ooh, mine happened before yours. And mine is pretty short, so... I will start us off, and then you can come in with your awesome one. I will. Okay. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. So, on May 9th, 1930, Mary Alice Maroney turned two years old, but it would be the last birthday she would ever spend with her biological parents in Chicago, Illinois. I thought you were going to say it would be the last birthday she ever had. I was like, oh my God, she died? No, but it's the last that she spent with her parents. Okay. Mary Alice was a cute, slightly chubby, blonde-haired, blue-eyed toddler when she was taken from her home and abducted, (gasps) never to be seen by her family again. Oh, my gosh. I know. Her parents, Michael and Catherine Maroney, married very young at only the age of 13. Wait, what? 13. She was 13? The mom was 13. How old was he? <clears throat> I'm not sure, but it's, you know, close to the same age. They were both really young parents. What? I cannot even imagine that. I'm 23 and I have a hard time with adult life. <laughs> yeah. Back in the olden days, you know, people married really young. They got married at 13 in their first house. They got married 18. at 13. Like, what? No thanks. So Mary Alice was the oldest, followed by an 11-month-old Anastasia, and there was another child on the way. So mom was pregnant. Okay. The Maronis were an extremely poor family and could no longer get by without assistance. They put in an ad in the social services section of the newspaper asking for help. What kind of help? Like... For assistance. What? Financial assistance. Oh. You can um, just put it in the app like, hey, I need money. Send me send me ten dollars. I don't know. It was I, <laughs> I thought you knew it was your case. They put out an ad asking for help, you know. Maybe clothes or food or money. Okay. You know, people would answer the ads. There was a social services section for that. Oh, okay. I wonder if you can do that, like, today. Probably not. People don't read newspapers anymore, so you're probably not going to get... I mean, they still read, like, digital newspapers. Yeah. I don't know. So, anyway, on May 14th, a woman claiming to be Julia Otis answered their ad. She showed up at their door. 
So she told Catherine that she was a social worker and that she would be able to help them. She spent some time with mother and daughters, and Catherine confided in her expressing her family's situation and their financial troubles. Before leaving, the woman who claimed to be Julia asked Catherine if she would allow her to take Mary Alice to California to to live with her for a little while, and then she would bring her back. Catherine, like any mother would, said no. Julia gave the family $2, which is more money than it is now at the time. I was and say like $2, like, wow. And said that she would return soon with more help. The next day, May 15th, 1930, the woman returned with groceries and clothing for the baby. And um, for the upcoming baby that Catherine was going to give birth to. She offered to take Mary Alice shopping with her for new clothes and shoes. Mm. Alice was reluctant to let her child go at first, but eventually allowed it, thinking that this was a social worker and that she could help them with their desperate situation. The lady who identified herself as Julia was well-dressed and spoke with a cultured voice, and Catherine felt that she could trust her. Mary Alice cried and did not want to go with the stranger, like any child would. Yeah. (laughs) But she was taken away, and she was never returned to her home. When Michael came home from work that evening, and the woman still hadn't returned with Mary Alice, they called the police. Well, like, what do you think is going to happen? This woman has already asked, can I take your daughter to California to live with me for, like, an undisclosed amount of time? And you were, you said no to that, like you should. And now she's like, well, can I just take her to the, to the store? Yeah, we're going to the store. She's not going to fucking take her to the store. She's already asked yeah. you to take your daughter to California. She's going to take your daughter to California. Yeah, but these were different times. People were more trusting back then. And these, remember, were people who were very young and in a very desperate situation. So if she thought, she was reluctant at first, but if she thought that, she could get some clothes and shoes out of it for her daughter. Yeah, she didn't. I guess. She shouldn't have, but. She still should have seen it coming, though. Yeah. So, where was I? They called the police. The police checked buses and trains traveling to California, but there was no trace of them. The next day, the family received a letter that read, quote, please don't be alarmed. I have taken your little girl to California with me. I have hired a special special nurse to care for her. We'll be back in two months. By that time, you will be on your feet again and will be able to care for her. She didn't even cry a little bit. She is outfitted like a princess. In the meantime, I'll help all I can to get you on your feet. Don't worry about her or anything else. When you get this letter, we'll be on our way already, as ever, Julia Otis. Quote. A couple weeks later, a second letter arrived from a Mrs. Alice Henderson, who identified herself as a cousin of Julia's. Mm-hmm. 
She claimed that Julia had lost her husband and child the year before and would return the child to her soon. Authorities, though, stated that both letters were in the same handwriting and likely written by the same person. Yeah. The family never stopped looking for their little girl. Julia Otis was described as a well-dressed young woman around the age of 22. She was said to have a cultured voice and had protruding teeth. What does that mean? Her teeth were, like, crooked, like, outward. Ew. The abduction was covered by the media and authorities continued to search, but to no avail. In 1952, a 24-year-old woman named Mary McClellan came forward and said she thought she might be Mary Alice. She had been adopted a year after Mary Alice had been taken and looked similar to the Moroni children. Mary Alice had now five brothers and two sisters who all looked strikingly similar to each other. And you can see their photos on the internet. They all look very similar. Mm -hmm. An anthropologist claimed he could tell that McClellan was a relation to the Moronis by examining their teeth. Uh McClellan and the Moronis met, but Catherine was sure that Mary was not her daughter. But then again, like, how does she know? The last time you saw your daughter, she was two years old. This is a full, like, adult woman now. Well, there were a few ways that she could be identified. And I will tell you them now. Okay. She agreed that there were striking there were there was a striking resemblance to Mary Alice, but she had had a scar on her stomach from an umbilical hernia, which McClellan did not have. Another doctor also came forward claiming that he had delivered Mary McClellan on November 17, 1927. And she had been adopted over two years before Mary Alice's abduction. Later, DNA testing proved that she was not, in fact, Mary Alice. And the case is still unsolved today. Oh, my God. So, like, that woman just disappeared to California. Well, she couldn't have, she might not have even been going to California. She could literally just be like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to California. And then could have hopped on a plane to freaking Vermont. Exactly. Oh my goodness. She could have gone to freaking Canada. She could have been anywhere, but she probably didn't go where she said she was. That is insane. Insane. That's freaking wild. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? Like somebody random could just. Show up at your door, claim to be a social worker, offer you help that you're in desperate need of, and then just runs off with your baby. Yeah. Like, but to be fair, she did warn the mom, like, hey, I'd like to take your child. Oh, you won't voluntarily give me your child? Guess I have to take it by force. You should have seen that coming. I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm not blaming the mom. She was far too young to have been a mom. Not blaming the mom. But that woman was clearly going to steal your child. 
she gave every sign. She's like, I'd like your child. Give me your child. Please. <laughs> she literally was like, give me your child. And she's like, mm, no. No. Okay, well, no. can I go here with your child? I'm definitely not going to take them. Mm, I the, guess. Child, the child clearly did not want to go. No. Oh my gosh. She could have said, like, let's all go together. Yeah. But, I mean, if you, if she's, because she still had, she had a baby on the way and still had, like, a young baby, too. hmm So, she's pregnant. She's got a young baby. She probably couldn't go with them. Because if her husband's not home, like, if he's off working, you can't just leave the baby behind. But it also shows you, like, the different classes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she looked and sounded trustworthy. Just don't trust people. People are bad. And don't put crazy ads in the paper. Yeah, don't don't tell the world (laughs) that you were poor and need help. (laughs) They're not going to help you. Don't help. Take advantage. Okay, let's go to your case. You have an awesome one. That's right. I <laughs> tell me why I forgot I had a case. <laughs> That's the whole point of this is that we both have a case, and I completely forgot that I would have to talk. You got too wrapped wrapped up in mine. I did. I really did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Focus. My case is on the. And pardon me if I mispronounce any of these. Um, the Eileen Moore Lighthouse. It's the disappearance of the three keepers of the lighthouse. And they disappeared under very, very mysterious, uncertain circumstances. Nobody knows what happened to them, uh, like, to this day. So I'm going to start with some background on this place. The Eileen Moore Lighthouse was designed by David Allen Stevenson for the Northern Lighthouse Board, and construction began in 1895 and lasted for four years. Construction was done by George Lawson for £1,899, which included building for all of the landing places, the stairs and the railway tracks all of the materials had to be carried up the 140 foot or 45 meter cliffs for those who use the metric system which is better than the imperial system i digress additionally another 3526 pounds was spent on the shore station at Brescleet on the Isle of Lewis. The Eileen Moore Lighthouse was first lit on December 7, 1899. The purpose of the railways was to transport food and supplies for the keepers and fuel for the light up to the lighthouse from the landing place. In 1925, the Eileen Moore Lighthouse was the first Scottish lighthouse to receive communication from the shore via wireless telegraphy, which wireless telegraphy is the transmission of telegraph signals by radio waves for the 
no, I didn't know. In the 1960s, the railway was removed and replaced with a modernized transport system, which in turn was replaced when helipads were constructed. On September 28, 1971, the lighthouse was fully automated. The helipad was reconstructed with reinforced concrete to enable maintenance visits in severely adverse weather. The light is produced by burning acetylene gas and has a range of 17 nautical miles or 20 miles, also 32 kilometers. And now that we've covered the background and history of the lighthouse, let's get into the reason we're here. The mysterious case of the disappearing lighthouse keepers. The first records of strange occurrences on the Flannan Isles was on December 15, 1900. This report comes from the steamer Arctor, which, uh, excuse me, which was on a passage from Philadelphia to Leith. They noted in their log that the light was not operational in the poor weather conditions, and when they docked three days later on December 18th, this sighting was passed on to the Northern Lighthouse Board, or NLB. The relief vessel Hesperus was supposed to sail out from Brescleet Lewis on December 20th, but due to bad weather conditions, they did not leave until the 26th of December. And at the time, the lighthouse was being manned by three men, James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur. So, sorry. Upon the arrival of the relief crew, they noticed that the flagstaff had no flag, all the usual provision boxes had been left on the landing stage for restocking, and even stranger, the previous crew was not present to welcome the new crew to shore, because that's typically what they did. Like, the, the guys who were leaving would be like, hey, new guys, you're here. Go. <laughs> Trade me. Um, Jim Harvey, the captain of the Hesperus, tried reaching them by blowing the ship's whistle and firing a flare, but was unsuccessful. A boat was launched, and Joseph Moore, the relief keeper, was left on shore alone. So there's, like, three new guys and, like, the the captain of the boat. But they were also late. Yeah, they were, like... They 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 may not have expected them or knew they were coming. Yeah, like, they might not have known when they were going to come by or something. Yeah. Um... But I would I would assume that they kept like the same schedule, like they would have come at the same time. They might have just gone down every day to check or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so of all the guys who went on the boat to as the relief crew, one of the guys hops off to kind of search the island, the other three send another boat. Um, or leave the with the boat to kind of do their own checking. So that one guy is left on the shore. He found that both the entrance gate and the main door were shut, the beds were unmade, and the clocks were stopped. He returned to the landing stage with news of his discoveries and then went back to the lighthouse, this time with Hesper's second mate and another crewman. So he got two pals and went back. They conducted a further search, and it was revealed that the lamps had been cleaned and refilled, 
a set of oil skins was also found, which suggested that one of the keepers left without them. There was no sign of any of the three keepers, neither inside the lighthouse or anywhere else on the island. Moore and three volunteer crewmen were left on the island to attend the light, while Hersperus returned to Lewis. Captain Harvey sent a telegram to the NLB stating, quote, A dreadful accident has happened at the Flannins. Three keepers, Ducat, Marshall, and the Occasional, have disappeared from the island, dot, dot, dot. The clocks were stopped, and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows. They must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane, end quote. By the way, the, the occasional, it, that's like kind of like the rotating person. Like there's always at least two and then a rotating third. So they called the third man the occasional. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what that meant at first. I had to do it. I was like, what the fuck does this mean? <laughs> Meanwhile, at Eileen Moore, men scoured every corner of the island for clues to determine the fate of the three men. They found that everything was intact at the east landing, but the west landing showed clear evidence of damage caused by recent storms. A box at 33 meters or 108 feet above sea level had been broken and everything inside had been tossed about. Iron, an iron railing had been bent and broken the iron railway was torn out of place and a huge boulder had been displaced. Later, on December 29th, 1900, a superintendent from the NLB came to the island to conduct an official investigation into what happened to the three missing keepers. Robert, Robert Muirhead had been the one to recruit these men and thus had a personal relationship not only to the case, but to the missing men as well. After examining the clothing left behind, uh, Muirhead concluded that Ducat and Marshall left the lighthouse heading down towards the Western landing stage. He then determined that the occasional MacArthur left during a heavy storm wearing only his shirt sleeves. He then noted whoever had been the last person to leave the lighthouse had been in direct violation of the NLD rules because there has to be at least one person to man the lighthouse. They had to like turn it on, I guess. I don't, I don't know how lighthouses work. From his investigation, Mirahead said, quote, from evidence which I was able to procure, I was satisfied that the men had been on duty up till dinner time on Saturday, the 15th of December that they had gone down to secure a box in which the mooring ropes, landing ropes, etc., were kept, and which was secured in a crevice in the rock about 110 feet above sea level, and that an extra-large sea had rushed up the face of the rock, had gone above them, and coming down with immense force, had swept them completely away, end quote. He also noted that the damage done to the Western landing stage was, quote, unbelievable unless actually seen, end quote. And I had read somewhere that they had gotten in trouble before about um, letting another box get damaged. So they were really concerned about securing this one. Yeah, yeah. I 
Yeah, there is research done later on, and I'll cover that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Don't spoil my case, Erin. My bad. I'll keep quiet. <laughs> How dare you? I was just trying to get in there because I want oh, to no. this case, and I'm like, but what about this? Yeah. So, anyways. Oh, gosh, I lost my spot. Blah, blah, blah. No Yeah, so no bodies were ever found on the island or around the island, but supernatural stories have sprouted stating that a giant sea serpent ate them or sea oh, eagles yes. snatched them up and carried them away. There's well, it's many... possible. Yeah, I know, right? Like a giant bird just came and picked them up. <laughs> Other theories state that the men arranged for a boat to come and take them away to a better fortune and new lives or that they were confronted by a, mal- a malevolent ghost ship and were killed. Or yeah, that they were... those things never happen to me. Do <laughs> you want a ghost ship to come and abduct you? No, but a boat can come along and take me to a better fortune. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> just gotta hop in that car. The next one you see, just hop in it. It'll take you somewhere. Okay, I'm only getting in if it's a boat. Only if it's a boat? That's fair, that's fair. <laughs> It'll take you somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> there were also speculations that they had been abducted by foreign spies. Ooh. Later on, reports of strange logbook entries developed. These reports claim that on December 12th, Marshall described, quote, severe winds, the likes of which I have never seen before in 20 years, end quote. He is also said to have described Ducat as being, quote, very quiet, end quote, and noted that MacArthur was crying. And people thought this was weird because MacArthur 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 was a seasoned mariner who also loved to fight. So he's like a tough man. He's a manly man. He's going to fight you because he feels like it. And this led many to question why he would have been crying in response to a storm. It's like, He's done this for a long time. Like, it's just a storm. He's seen storms. Yeah. That were really bad before. He's no crybaby. Yeah. Yeah. He'll fight you if you call him that. He'll punch (laughs) you in the face. Log entries from the following day, December 13th, allegedly state that the storm was still raging on and that all three men were praying. This was another puzzling piece of evidence for several reasons. One being that all three of these men were veteran keepers and knew that they were in a secure structure 150 feet above sea level and should have known that they were safe. Additionally, and even more strange, there were no reported storms in the area from December 12th, 13th, and 14th. Nothing. Crazy. This is crazy because right now it's actually thundering outside. We're in oh my God, it's overcast here. It's, <laughs> it's not thundering, unfortunately. We had our thunderstorm two nights ago. I keep thinking my glasses are on my head. That's why I keep doing this. (laughs) I keep on like, what's on my head? Nothing. The final log entry was said to be made on December 15th and states, quote, storm ended, sea calm. God is overall, end quote. Which I got to say, that's kind of like a badass entry. That feels like ominous, but also like, fuck yeah. Anyways, (laughs) it was eventually found that these log entries had been falsified. It's all fictional. Who? By who? I don't know. They they don't know. It was just made up. Like afterwards they were falsified? 
Yeah, like, it was just a story people were telling. That's crazy. There were no, like, vlog entries found with this. Subsequent research has taken into account the geography of the island. The Island Moor coastline is made up of deep, narrow gullies called geos. In fact, the western landing is located on one of these many geos and terminates in a cave. In high seas or storms, water will rush into these caves and then burst out with immense force. Research states that is, it is entirely possible that MacArthur might have seen a series of waves and ran down to the landing to warn his colleagues, but then was swept away himself. Research, research, recent research done by James Love, and this is the part where you were saying, the side discovered that Marshall had previously been fined five shillings due to losing equipment in a storm. Love reasoned that it was possible, seeking to avoid another fine, that Marshall and Ducat went down to the landing to secure the equipment to tie it down and make sure that they wouldn't lose it this time. Um, And during that storm, and that it's possible they had been swept away. James Love goes on to speculate that MacArthur, although required to stay behind and man the lighthouse, according to NLB rules, instead tried to warn his colleagues, but was swept away along with them. This theory can be supported by the oilskins that were left behind, and also by MacArthur's coat, which was left hanging. But it does not explain why the door and the gate were both closed. Another theory is explained by firsthand experience of Walter Adelbert? Ad- Aldebert? Aldebert. Aldebert, yeah, thanks. <laughs> he was a keeper from 1953 to 1957. Um, and he says that he believes one man may have been washed away, but then when his companions went down to rescue him, that they too were swept away. Another theory is based on the psychology of the keepers. Allegedly, MacArthur was a violent man who loved to fight, like I mentioned before. So they think it's possible a fight might have broken out near the cliff's edge of the West Landing that caused all three men to fall through their deaths. One final theory, though, claims that one of the men, one of the men, one of the men went insane. He killed the other two, threw their bodies into the ocean before killing himself. Those are some fun theories. Yeah. I think I kind of like the idea of maybe one guy going insane. Because I think, like, no matter how seasoned, how much of a veteran you are, you you're gonna go a little crazy maybe he just like snapped yeah well you're stuck in this smallish area with two other men yeah it's a, it's a, a confined space you yeah. can't get away because it's six weeks at a time that they're out there and it's just the same people and it's like pretty tough work they've got to like be very diligent about it all and they're dealing with all these storms and everything i don't know i don't know i think it's high yeah yeah it's just crazy. Crazy. And we will never know what happened. No, no. That's just, yeah. It's fun. That was a fun one. Yeah. 
but anyways, this was this was fun. We've said that like five times. <laughs> this was good. This is great. This is good. This is fun. <laughs> we'll see you next time on Dinner, Drinks, and Death.